Hey, my guest today is my friend Ellie Honig. Ellie is a former federal prosecutor with the SDNY in New York. He is a CNN legal analyst. He wrote the amazing book about Bob Barr called Hatchet Man, which really was a great inside look at the manipulation of the DOJ during the Trump era. He has got a new book out called Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, where he goes through a number of very high profile cases of how the rich and powerful avoided justice. And some of them didn't quite avoid it forever, but how the things that would put an ordinary person in jail somehow with the richest folks in America can be delayed and deferred and pushed back. It's getting great reviews and I'm really anticipating reading the book myself. So with us today is Ellie Honig. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. One of the things I had in my notes before we had this conversation was that, you know, and I've been around politics for a long time now, it seems like the legal wrangling, like the lawfare in Washington has reached a level that we have rarely seen in our lifetimes. Like not even like during the Nixon era, but the fact that there's so much litigation, so many investigations, so many competing moments here where the president, the former president are both being investigated. You've got the former president being investigated for trying to overthrow the, the, the 2020 election. You've got this incredible constellation. I mean, are we have we reached like peak DC lawyering? We, we have, Rick. And it's so funny you, you raise this because, so I teach undergrads right. um, at Rutgers right, University right. Where, where I went in, in Jersey. And we had our, and, and I'm teaching a class this semester on the history of the Justice Department from RFK. Okay. Yeah, on. Yeah. And we were going through sort of, you know, Watergate and then the Iran-Contra and, the, and Janet Reno as AG and, and Whitewater and, you know, uh, Ken Starr all the way through right. the present. And I said to my students, I cannot stress to you enough what a crazy moment we are in right now. We have one special counsel, a federal yep. prosecutor investigating the sitting mm -hmm. president. We have another <laughs> special counsel investigating the former president who is about to run for the next presidency, probably against the current guy. I mean, you know, there are so many dimensions. We're beyond three-dimensional here. We're in some other dimension, right. twilight zone. And, and the guy at the center of it all, by the way, is Merrick Garland, who I'm sure we'll yes. talk about, and I talk about quite a bit in the book. But boy, does he have some big decisions to make. It really is one of those things that, that um, Merrick Garland is, I don't even know if he realizes how consequential his decisions are in these two areas, yeah. in these two cases are going to be for the presidency for and for the country going forward. Yep. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, both of these decisions are going to impact the 2024 election. I mean, of course, look, we know that there cannot be an indictment of Joe Biden while right. he's sitting president, right? We remember yes. from Robert Mueller days that DOJ has this policy going back to the Watergate mm -hmm. era that we will not indict a sitting president. By the way, I do have a chapter in my book about, about that. And, and you know what's interesting about that policy that I always want mm -hmm. to stress? People sometimes say DOJ can't, can't indict the sitting president, but that's not actually accurate. 
the accurate way to say it is DOJ long ago they decided that they don't want to even try. <laughs> right. They would voluntarily refrain from doing so. Now, look, there's good sure. reasons that that for that. And, and if you read the memos where they lay out these policies, it's not even, the memos aren't even like, well, what's the law? The memos are basically like, how the hell would this work? Right? Like, how, how would the government right. function? <laughs> right? So, so Biden is not going to get indicted, but if the facts play out, it's possible that Robert Hur, the special mm-hmm. counsel, comes back and issues a report and says, I do think there's enough here to indict. By the way, in contrast to Robert Mueller, I think you and I agree. I, I make the, the argument in this book that Mueller spit the bit by, by just giving us this nonsense. I can't say, but I won't say, but I will. But, you, you know, I think Mueller failed by not even stating his conclusion. Well, I think Mueller failed so by- that's on But the don't you hand, think Mueller failed by, one, having that weirdly, you know, esoteric conclusion, but also letting Bill Barr- Take command of it and say, "Oh, nothing is nothing to see here, folks. Move on." Now, now, now you're on to my ah, first book, which <laughs> I loved. Which by the way, I loved that book. I thought because <laughs> I, I really thought Thank Bill you. Barr was one of the most dangerous figures in American politics during the Trump era. Absolutely, and and, and absolutely, and he's on this never-ending image rehabilitation tour. He's just Bill, Bill Maher. He goes, he does his tours. Yeah. I mean, the, the guy, and the funny thing is, this is a minor point, but, you know, he always tries to play it like, oh, I don't care about my image. Uh, I mean, the, the rehab tour is like so intensive now, I'm expecting him to show up at fucking Coachella. The comedy sounds of Bill Barr, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so, your new book, which I am really looking forward to because I love the Barr book, as I said, um, it's called Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Now, you go through in this book, Folks like Donald Trump, Jeffrey Epstein, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein. Tell us why it seems in America today, um, and I mean, I have my opinions, but tell us why you think so many people at such a, a high level seem to evade the course of justice in this country. Yeah, so that is the central question of the book. And Rick, I should say, the way this book came about was was really so organic because I did my first book on Barr and a couple of weeks after it published, HarperCollins, the publisher said, mm-hmm. what do you want to do next? And I said, I, I, I don't know. That was kind of my idea. I don't really have anything left. And they said, well, what is the number one question you get asked most? Take a few days, think about it. And I was like, oh, I don't need to take a few days. I'll tell you right on this call, how the hell does he get away with it, right? And the he right. can vary, almost always a he, um, and the most common he is Donald Trump. But as you say, it's it's sure. it, it's the people you listed we talk about in the book, members of Congress I talk about in the book, CEOs, CFOs, all of that. And, and if I had to boil it down, it, it's there's no obviously no one magic bullet here. There's no one solution. But I sort of lay blame in three different sectors. One, we have a legal system that creates all sorts of advantages for powerful people. We just talked about the the, the Mueller um, the policy, the right. DOJ policy. Now that's probably more mm-hmm. on prosecutors, but we have various legal factors that favor powerful people, powerful politicians. Second of all, the smart ones, the savvy ones know how to manipulate and exploit those advantages. I mean, I was a mafia prosecutor in New York City. I was chief sure. of organized crime right. in the Southern District. And you know, I know it's a, a trendy thing for analysts to go on TV and go, that Trump's like a mob boss. But as I went through the examples of my own cases, I found how literally true that is. So I have, look, there's plenty of mob stories in here. If you like Goodfellas and all that, this is like the real life Goodfellas about murder cases and all this. But so many of the tactics, so many of the tactics Trump uses are really right out of the mafia playbook, whether just by instinct or 
whatever. And then third, look, I am quite critical in this book of prosecutors, of prosecutors who pulled their punches, of certain policies that prosecutors have that give extra protection to powerful people, certain sort sure. of see no evil type type approaches. Uh, I'm, I'm obviously critical of Bill Barr. I'm critical of Merrick Garland in some respects. I'm critical of Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA. I'm critical sure. of Alexander Acosta, who gave Epstein a free he gave pass. Epstein a, a, a you know, sweetheart deal knowing what Epstein was. Yep. And by the way, a lot of the people you listed in the beginning, people may hear, well, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, Bill Cosby, they all got prosecuted eventually. But I show in each of those cases how they all got free passes right away. The only reason that they ever got prosecuted was one of two things. Media, right? Julie Brown, for example, the great Miami reporter blew the lid off of Epstein and political pressure. And if, if, if it hadn't been for those things, all these people would have completely walked. Cosby did end up walking anyway, because that prosecutor, that's another one I am very critical of. Right. So yeah, so I'd say those three things, the, the justice system itself, the manipulation of those advantages by the bosses and, and shortcomings by prosecutors. Support for Rick Wilson's The Enemies List comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Wilson. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Wilson. Odoo. Modern management made simple. Yeah, I think there is a belief, uh, maybe it's a TV-driven belief in the minds of most people, like, oh, a federal prosecutor is going to find out about X, and man, they're not going to let the, they're not going to, they're going to be like a dog on a bone on this guy, and they, and they frequently aren't. They frequently are are less so. Let me give you sort of, in the book, I talk about this. You know, that can go two ways because there is such thing in the world of federal prosecutors of wanting to go after a big name, right? I mean, you know. SDNY gets accused of this. Oh, they're just big game hunting, right? They, right, just, right. they wouldn't care. I mean, the, the classic example is Martha Stewart, right? There's always been a debate about would they have gone after some unknown CEO who lied in a proffer about, you know, whatever. I don't know the answer to that. I don't, that's not part of the book. Right. But DOJ's own guidance, the justice manual, the document that goes to every prosecutor in the country specifically okay. says if the person you're looking at is a powerful, they don't say powerful, but a high profile person. If the case is likely to in, 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 result in national media coverage, the case has to go to higher and higher levels of review and approval. And I give examples mm-hmm. in the book of cases I was involved in at the SDNY sure. where if they didn't involve anyone who was famous, I would have made the decision at my low level that that would right. be that. But because a couple of them, one of them I, I talk about involved the famous major league baseball player had to go way, way, way up the chain as a result. And the natural consequence of that is the more people who review and have to sign off, the more difficult the it is to actually bring a charge. The, yeah, yeah. Right. The, the more people can the, say, I don't see it. I'm killing this. Yeah. Right. And, exactly. the, and, and the more people who say, oh, this is in the past. It's way in the rearview mirror. Why are you doing this now? Why didn't right. you bring this to me when it was fresh? Right. Um, yes, that too. I guess I have, and again, I think it's, I think part of this is people have this idea of what prosecutors do based on television. Yeah. And and they always take every case and they always win every case and they always, you know, are relentless and merciless. And I, I guess that's just not the way it is. But I, I I think that sort of illusion of what prosecutors do is also something that is I I think, and I'll get your thoughts on this, I think it's led to a sort of growing part of the American skepticism about everything government does. Yeah. When they see a, very wealthy yeah. people get away with stuff, 
there it, it makes them just like okay well i'm gonna get effed if i do this but you know this hedge fund guy nothing happened to him so that's why a, not, that's such you know, an interesting point taxes? so i'm gonna put this under points i wish i had thought of um but but it's really an interesting point how you know prosecutors have a very high profile in this country, especially since a bunch sure, of us sure. now we're on TV and all that. And I think people have a lot of faith in prosecutors. And I think when they see prosecutors coming up short, whether it's Robert Mueller or to be mm. seen on all the special counsel now, um, or the prosecutor in the Cosby case or the, Wine, the Cy Vance in the original Weinstein case, that shakes public faith in our institutions um, in, a, in a sort of exponential way, because we see right. prosecutors as the ultimate good guys, the ultimate sort of avengers of justice. Mm-hmm. And, and when they're pulling up short, I think that really undermines everything. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, because, you know, th- this idea of, you know, we pay our taxes so that so that we are protected from bad people, uh, I yeah. think. Uh, and I, I do think, you know, America may be a celebrity obsessed culture, but it's also I mean, the, the dark side of that is sometimes when they're when the celebrities do wrong. I think there's almost like a weird obsession with Americans of like, oh, how much are they going to get away with this time? Yeah. I yeah, mean, I Bill think Cosby right. took decades to resolve. Yeah. Yeah. And so did Harvey Weinstein. I mean, uh, right. people, people knew, people came forward. I mean, the Harvey Weinstein case, he's, he's going to die in jail now, but let's remember oh, yeah. there was a point when this model, Ambra Bataliana Gutierrez came to the NYPD told her that he had been harassing, you know, sexually right. harassing and assaulting her. They had her wire up. She wore a recording device. We've all heard this recording. Right. And he admits it to her and he says, I'm used to that. So now right. you have this guy, you have a very credible witness in Ms. Gutierrez. You have a recording of him admitting that he that he molested her and that he's used to that. And Cy Vance, unknown to anybody at the time, goes, mm, don't see it. And then later when the media went crazy, he backtracked and and he found a way to charge Harvey Weinstein. I guess better late than never, but he absolutely missed it the first time. As did the Cosby prosecutors, as did the Epstein prosecutors, and maybe someday we'll be saying as did the Donald Trump prosecutors. We don't know. You know, I think one of the most fascinating and and dark figures in our in our political culture, who is our, in our in our celebrity culture, who is entwined with the political culture, the business culture, academia, is Jeffrey Epstein. And oh, you cover gosh. Epstein in this book at a, at, a, at a pretty fair clip. And tell us a little bit about why that particular prosecution took so long. And and why yeah. – I, I mean, there are still people weirdly out there like Alan Dershowitz and others who are still defending this guy to this day. The, the Epstein saga, and I, I go through it in a bit in this book and I break it down, is is – really unbelievable. I mean, that in the literal sense, like, I can't believe this happened. So Epstein comes under suspicion of, of child molestation right. in Florida. Yep. And the case lands in front of Alexander Acosta, who was then the U.S. attorney, the top federal prosecutor in the Miami area, mm-hmm. later to become Donald Trump's very briefly secretary of, I think it was labor. Yep. Right? Yep. Acosta, now Epstein goes out and hires himself this Forget about OJ's dream team. I mean, this is, I'm not saying these lawyers are all great, by the way. I think some of them are actually quite poor at what they do, but they're all big (laughs) names and they're all intimidating guys, right? Alan Dershowitz, Kenneth Starr passed away Mm -hmm. recently. Um, The the prior US attorney from Miami, you know, five or six guys who would normally be like the headliner on a case, all on this case. And they all descend on Florida. And there's this unbelievable behind the scenes information on, the, the pressure campaign they put on Acosta, the pressure campaign they put on his people. At, at some point, Acosta said, or other people say they, they're worried that 
they're going to be uh, followed by Epstein's people and and exposed personally mm-hmm. and all this. The bottom line, and I lay out the whole saga in the book, the bottom line is Acosta agrees to let Epstein plead to a state-level crime right. that calls for, I, th- I think it's 11 or 13 months in prison. And how does he end up serving that time? It is in mansion a, in Palm Beach. <laughs> almost, almost close. He's released on daytimes and weekday, or weekends to his... This place called something scientific, which is the same address as his attorney. So he's chilling in his attorney's office. Right. God knows what they had in there all day long. Now, this completely flies under the national radar. I had no idea this was happening in right. 2008, 2009, right? I, I don't know. I mean, 90% of the world, it was a deal in Florida, but it didn't really come out. When it blows up is when Alexander Acosta becomes Trump's cabinet member. And mm-hmm. then it gets into holy hell. What a wild injustice. And only then did my former office, the SDNY, where 10 years later now, bring the heavy federal charges that he should have faced from the beginning. He goes into prison, he dies, we know the rest. But there's no way the SDNY brings that case without Acosta becoming a high profile figure and the media going, look at this. But Jeffrey Epstein, it's hard for me to think of any example of anyone who got away with it more egregiously than him. Yeah. Right. I think think he really is sort of the alpha predator of these guys who- who you know, and, and he ends up escaping it in death. Um, yeah. And even yeah. even though he was in the MCC and he was, you know, on his way to trial, uh, it still could have taken a lot of different twists and turns. Absolutely. And, and the fact yep. that the only person that's in jail about the whole thing is Ghislaine Maxwell, who is here <laughs> right. where I am in Tallahassee, Florida, in the in the oh, is that right? Federal, is that where she was federal women's correctional facility teaching yoga and etiquette classes at. Uh, here in Tallahassee in the prison. Wow. I Yoga did not know and that. etiquette. God, God bless. God bless. God, God, she, God bless. Hope, hope yeah. She, uh, recovers. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, speaking of the, like the high, the high get, the high get away with it and the low get busted. Um, the one six folks. And I think, I think, you know, we can talk about Jack Smith to whatever degree we talk about Jack yep. Smith as we go. But right now, the people that are getting prosecuted successfully and sent to to jail or being fined are the lowest level minions and foot soldiers. Yep. They are yep. the they are the yahoos who showed up um because you know they got fired up, you know, listening to Steve Bannon's podcast and fired up listening to Trump say it'll be wild and fired right. up when Trump gave a speech. Why is it and I get this question all the time and I explain it as a non-lawyer all the time. You know, yep. why is it none of the people that organized this, planned this, plotted this, encouraged this, schemed and conspired to put this thing together have faced any kind of justice? And what do you think the future yep. looks like for the people who were in, say, the Willard War Room at the at the right. level of like the Bannons and the Roger Stones and the Ali Alexanders and all the rest? It's such an important question. It's one that I ask in the book. And in fact, I have the last chapter in the book is called Waiting for Garland. Um a little play on waiting for Godot there. Exactly. Right? Um, yeah. Um, look, as of this moment, and I say in the book, this could change. We right. legitimately don't know. We might see charges against Donald Trump, although I think it's becoming increasingly unlikely we see DOJ charge Donald Trump relating to January 6th. But as we sit here right now, you and me, Rick, we are two plus years out from January 6th, 2021. Not a mm-hmm. single person, forget about Donald Trump, not a single person with any 
smidge of political power or any proximity to political power has been charged with a damn thing. And I include members of Congress. I include John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark and Rudy Mm -hmm. and on down the line. And don't tell me, not you, but don't tell me the Oath Keepers. Yes, those are very important cases. Sure. They had to go after them. They did a good job. But those people are not politically powerful in the way we're talking about here. Right. Those are now, sergeants in this thing. They're yeah, not they're, officers. Right. They're dangerous and they're they're good cases. They had to be made, but that's not a substitute for going after the real power sources behind this. Right. And I'm critical of Merrick Garland in the following respects. One, he is just taking way too long. And people go, oh, these things take time. These things take time. I know. I, I was a prosecutor for 14 years. Not this much. You don't have no. to start with the guys in face paint and the and the horns and all that, right, you know, right, right. And and work your way up. Hey, I I argue in the book, we don't even know whether there is a direct connection between those folks, and you don't need it. He shouldn't need it because what Trump did and others did on their own is something that that merits prosecution in, in, in the that, public yeah. eye. That's out there directly in the in in public view. Yeah. Um. You know, you don't have to do like deep undercover investigation to know what right. they were saying, tweeting, doing. Right. But and like, let me just say this one yeah, other thing. Go, go. The delay matters. It's not just a question of impatience. The longer you wait to charge this case, the harder it's going to be to convict for a couple of reasons. One, the yeah, farther absolutely. you get away from the event, the less immediate it seems to a jury, right? It's one thing to argue January 6th, you know, in late 2021. It's another thing. When is this case going to get, if let's assume Donald Trump gets indicted tomorrow by DOJ. When does this case get tried? You don't get to trial. We're into 2024. By this point, he's a candidate. He could be the nominee. I mean, good luck getting 12 people unanimously to convict on the eve of the 2024 election if he's the front runner. And and given the political culture he has built around himself, yep. um, I I have a, a, a slightly unpopular opinion. Um, <laughs> I think indictment actually helps him with his base. That, I've heard that. I because think, it energizes. I think, right. I think they get pissed off and they go out and they say the deep state's trying to take out Donald. And I but, think But it, even I, even yeah, I agree. I mean, even less than that. Look at look at Mar-a-Lago. The Mar-a-Lago search happened on August 8th. He had his yep. biggest fundraising bump that he's had, you know, right then. I mean, and, and you know, there's been reporting. Olivia Nuzzi, I think a friend of yours, friend yep. of mine, yep. wrote a, wrote a really interesting piece as she always does about how lackadaisical Trump's current 2024 campaign is. Well, nothing would energize it like an indictment. I don't think that's a reason not to indict. I think you got to do what you got to do, but you're right. That could be an impact. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that idea that there's almost a separate belief structure now among his supporters that, yeah, yeah, it it may be the DOJ or the FBI, but those people aren't real. That's not the real, that's not the real justice we seek. As a listener to this podcast, you know, democracy is in danger in America and beyond this Titanic challenge requires a powerful response. And that's why Resolute Square was founded. The Enemies List is part of the Resolute Square family. We're a pro-democracy network. The Enemies List is just one part of Resolute Square's pro-democracy content and coverage. Our members get particularly exciting benefits. Exclusive live roundtable discussions with me, Joe Trippi, Reed Galen, Stuart Stevens, and Tara Setmayer. In those discussions, you can ask us questions directly, as if you are in the room at a campaign strategy session. In these sessions, we'll give folks answers on how to fight back against the crazy, how to push back against the MAGA media, and how to communicate effectively in the battle for our democracy. We're building a new arsenal for democracy, and we could use your support. Head over to ResoluteSquare.com enemies to let the world know where you stand. Everybody's got a morning ritual. I know I do. 
and I want to feel like I'm getting my day going. I want to feel like I'm moving. And more than coffee sometimes, it's making sure you're clean, squared away, put together. You can get your day started by upping your shave game with Harry's sleekest razor yet, the craft handle. I like to use it because I've got to shave this giant dome of mine every day. So I got to keep it shiny. I have a beard, but I keep my neck clean front and back, do all the miscellaneous trimming. And the new craft handle, it actually is a lot more precision, at least that I found, with the new grip. I really like it a lot. You'll be getting quality shaving for a really amazing price. For now, they're offering the craft handle starter set for 10 bucks. It's a $17 value, so this is something you really should try. And if you don't like it, it's on them, guys. They stand behind the product. They guarantee it. How can you get a hold of the craft handle, the latest, greatest from Harry's? It's simple. Get it delivered to your door for 10 bucks at harrys.com slash enemies list. That's harrys.com slash enemies list. I guess, you know, one of the rules I, I was hearing about the, about, the, about the book, it's like, I thought to myself, nobody with a driver it, on the one six thing is going to get prosecuted or, or has, it been, <laughs> has been prosecuted. Nobody, nobody with a driver, nobody who uses a car service is Listen, in trouble. We used to love to flip drivers in the mob. There's nobody. I flipped a driver named Howie Santos who one time. They're the best possible guys to flip. This guy wired up for us for months and months. He made the greatest recordings ever. So if you can flip a driver, then you're, then you're golden. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. Yeah, that would seem like the, especially in, in, in this day and age where the, where the mob boss is probably on a cell phone, you can bump up the recording and the phone records and everything also, else. And- Yes, and drivers are always pissed off because the the boss goes, wait, wait out here and comes out three and a half hours later. They're always disgruntled. So they're right, right, right. (laughs) So that idea, though, that we're going to have, you know, the potential of a Trump trial being during the election, I just can't see how DOJ goes forward with it. I mean, they've been so cautious. They've been so, you know, so lax, not lackadaisical. I I don't want to fully say that, but they have had a sort of, of, uh, they don't understand the cadence of American politics right. and media cycles. And in fact, but that's also, a lot also, of what your book's about is these people exploit yeah. the cadence of attention in our society. Exactly right. Exactly right. And also, look, just the pace is not acceptable for Merrick Garland. I mean, different prosecutors like different uh, you know, people run faster or slower. And, and what I say about Garland is he took a bureaucratic, myopic approach to this where he could have gone for the jugular, but instead he poked at every capillary. And as a result... Here we are. Maybe he'll maybe he'll pull the trigger someday. Maybe he will. But I think it's uh, there's a line that I quote in the book. There was a great underrated movie from the '90s called Searching for Bobby Fisher. You remember this? You ever see this? I Rick? do. The Chess Prodigy. And there's a great moment where the kid, who's I don't know, ten years old, offers two moves in. He offers a surrender to his opponent, who's the big bad guy. Right. And the and the and the opponent goes, "What the hell? What do you mean surrender? We just started." And the kid goes, "You've already lost. You just don't know it yet." Now, I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but I think, look, I, I know how long things take to investigate. I know that things are complicated. I cannot for the life of me understand why Merrick Garland, if he was focused and not myopic, couldn't have gotten this thing charged in late 2021, taken eight right. months, nine months, right. 10 months, and we'd, be, we'd have done the trial by now, we'd be on trial right now. Instead, we're, we're way, way, way far behind the eight ball. And we just had special counsel appointed, which is going to make this even more complicated. So what do you think the role of, in, of the 1-6 committee um, played yeah. in, the, in the cadence of what Garland's doing and the pacing and the timing of what Garland has done or, or hasn't done? My theory yeah. of the case is that it hasn't had much effect at all. That, oh, so, that, okay. So I that, disagree, actually. But go ahead. Really? Okay. Tell me. Tell me. 
I look, I I have been critical of the one six committee in some respects. I think they went light on their own sure. colleagues, McCarthy and those guys who blew yep. off the subpoenas and nothing happened. Um, but by and large, the committee, I think, did a remarkable job of fact finding. And by the way, the committee has far less potent investigative and enforcement tools than oh, DOJ for does. Sure. I mean, I said in one of my articles, this is like a guy in a Tesla getting lapped by a kid on a big wheel. The fact that the committee <laughs> was so far ahead of DOJ, right? And I, look, D, the committee gave us so much more information than DOJ had. Cassidy Hutchinson, to me, the most important right. witness we heard from. DOJ Very had important no, the, witness. Yes. The New York Times reported, and it's it's never been contravened, and it seems right, that when she was testifying, DOJ prosecutors were sitting on their couch like you and me, jaws agape, you know, astonished was the language that the New York Times used at what they were learning. They were behind the game on her, on Pat Cipollone. And I think by the January 6th committee, by making such a compelling presentation, I think they upped public pressure quite a bit to where DOJ had to get much more serious okay. and, and step on the brake, uh, excuse me, step on the gas a little bit when it comes okay. to Trump. Uh, Probably uh, look, too late, I, but yeah. I take your point. My, my, thought, my thought on it was, I thought, you know, I think they, uh, my feeling, my sense at least, was that they were over-focused on the, on the small fish at oh, DOJ sure. and, and didn't think, I think they might have considered it was never practical to get the big ones at DOJ. The, right. Like, I feel like they had almost written it off. At least that's my sense. And I don't have any, any like reasoning behind it other than, I just know how Washington works. I, I had lived there way too yeah. long and felt that, it felt like that, ah, oh, yeah, we can't really do that. <laughs> so we might as well throw up, throw a lot of chaff in the air and arrest you know, it's Stuart Rhodes and these other morons. Right. If I had to guess, I mean, we don't have any proof of this. I don't think it was ever spoken that way. But if I had to guess and I could somehow access the deep inner inner uh, sanctum of Merrick Garland's brain, I would guess that there was some like, look, like this is too messy. We'll never get there. We don't want this. Let's let's try to appease them with some scraps and move on. Right. So what's another story that 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 people are going to find really amazing in Untouchable? Something, <laughs> I got one something for that, you. that people haven't really focused on yet. I, I report for, I know they haven't focused on because I report for the first time in this book on what happened with the Justice Department in my former office, the SDNY's hush money prosecution, which ended up being of only Michael Cohen, right? The, right, the payoff right. to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Well, a lot of people wonder, as did I, how the hell could it be that for all the people who are involved in this, for all the people who benefited from this, the only person ever prosecuted was Michael Cohen, who went right. to prison for other crimes, but this too. And I have the behind the scenes story. I got- Oh, wow. I, I can't, you know, I in this book, I tell the story for the first time from all different perspectives of <clears throat> how on earth that came to be. And I don't want to give it all away, but all I right. will tell you that the short version is the bosses at Main Justice, DOJ, right, stepped right. on certain aspects of what the SDNY wanted to do. And then ultimately the SDNY- itself decided to back off. And you can sort of read wow. why in the book, but I bring you back inside those halls of the SDNY. Oh, that, I, I, now, so. now I am excited. That's <laughs> outstanding. Because I, I know Michael really well, and, and he is a yep. passionate he's guy. He's a friend of mine as well. To, yep. Yeah, he's, he's correctly passionate about trying to get to the bottom of this bullshit. Um, because, you know, even from a distance, the political level of, of let's excise Michael Cohen only and pretend he just did this on his own. Yeah is yeah. astounding to me. I mean, and, and yeah. you'll see how Alan Weisselberg and David Pecker and these other guys who are around this, how they all sort of managed to find their way between the cracks. Um, and it's 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 a remarkable story. It's actually, as I say in the book, look, 
I love the SDNY. I mean, I was raised there. Sure, it's of like course. A part of your, my that's, family. Yeah, it's home base. But but I think, you know, ultimately it's quite remarkable that the SDNY, the most powerful, feared, vaunted prosecutor's office in the country, could have taken a shot here. I'm not saying it was dead bang, and I have different right, views right. of the prosecutors in the book about how strong the case was, but they gave it a pass for reasons that I sort of lay out here, and I can leave it to people to decide whether those are legitimate or illegitimate. No, nothing, right. nothing nefarious, but just a question. Sure, of sure, but but just not not wanting to not wanting to, to to swing and miss. I'm sure is part of it. Big so, part, of it, yes. Well, listen. Uh, so tell us a little more about when the book comes out, and yep. uh, and how we can reach you on social media. The book comes out on January 31st. Um, I am so one nice thing about having a weird name like Ellie Honig, unlike Rick Wilson, which there's probably <laughs> 4,000 Rick Wilsons, is I'm the only one. There's not like Ellie Honig 08 or the real, you know, E L I E H O N A G. I'm on all the uh, Twitter and all that stuff. Um, I, I think people are really going to enjoy this book. And look, what, what I love about it is it's just a question that every single person has asked me in every single format. And what I try to do is give it a really modern, as you said, Rick, I, I don't view prosecutors in a vacuum. I know we we prosecutors like to convey this notion that we are robots and we just kick ass, but we're humans and there are politics that right. come into play for better or for worse. So I hope that I can advance the answer to this question. Well, Ellie, thank you so very much for coming on the podcast. Really a great conversation. Look forward to having you back on again. And uh, and and I will uh, I, I wish you all the best for a uh, for a, a big splash with the book Untouchable. How powerful people get away with it. Thanks so much. Great talking to you. Thanks. Well, the enemies list this week, it's a broad entry. It's a broad entry because you've often observed, I'm sure, that the right-wing media complex moves in this unbelievable synchronicity, this insane degree of almost immediate adoption of the same message at the same intensity level that reinforces itself across different sectors of the right-wing media complex. And what we saw this week with the release of the police body cam footage from San Francisco during the attack on Paul Pelosi by a hammer-yielding assailant put the lie to something that the right-wing media complex was very, very, very invested in just a few weeks ago. Remember, when Pelosi was attacked in his home, by a conspiracy-inflected, MAGA, QAnon-inflected, or infected, if you will, by a guy named David DePape. Now, we're going to debate whether or not, at some point, DePape is mentally ill, or whether he's been activated and whatever conditions he had were enhanced and expanded by his exposure to the right-wing media ecosystem over the last few years, which he was apparently a frequent user. But the reason the folks today are on the enemies list is that for months, since October, when the attack occurred, there has been a favorite theory on the far right that this was some sort of gay tryst gone wrong, some sort of bondage game gone wrong. Well, what you saw in the police body cam video released this week was quite different. You saw an 82-year-old man scared out of his damn mind, holding onto the arm of a guy holding a hammer out of fear. He was holding the guy's, trying to hold the guy's arm so the guy wouldn't swing. And when the police knocked on the door of the Pelosi residence and, and it was opened by Paul Pelosi and the guy's lurking there in the background and they scream, drop the hammer, David DePape pulls the hammer back all the way back and winds up and smashes it into Paul Pelosi's head. It is unbelievably lucky that Paul Pelosi lived through this. But for months and months, 
the far right decided they were going to play games with this. They were going to, and then this is everybody from Seb Gorka to Don Jr. to Trump himself to Raheem Kassam, Glenn Beck, Roger Stone, all of them. Imagine the portfolio, the pantheon of the shitbird human beings that make up the, the, the kings and queens of the far right media. And they all took a bite of this, including Twitter uber lord Elon Musk, who tweeted immediately, oh, there's more to this story than meets the eye. Well, no, there wasn't. It was a violent assault by a guy who was activated by far-right propaganda. And the people who, after this new body cam video was released this week, if they had some vestigial sense of shame, they would have apologized, but they didn't. But there was another clip of video released at the same time that they have conveniently ignored because their whole theory was, oh, Pelosi let him in the house. They knew each other. They were lovers, blah, blah, blah. Well, horseshit, because the guy broke into the house and there's more video of him breaking into the house. So this is a really interesting example to me of why people should be on the enemies list because they knew it was bullshit all along. They knew it was a lie from the very start. They knew it was complete dog shit from the second they started saying it and tweeting it. But why did they do it? Because they recognized the danger of acknowledging that the propaganda and the conspiracy theories and the insanity that they depend on both for clicks and for engagement and for profit activate people like David DePape into acts of violence. And he was activated into an act of direct political violence. And I find it remarkable, even now, even though I know better, even though I know these people like the worst 10 miles of bad road in South Georgia, even though I know who they are and what they are, even now, not one of them has come out to my knowledge after watching a piece of video of a madman swing a hammer at the head of an 82-year-old man with anything but more lies about it, with anything but more bullshit about it. You guys, and the list is long and indistinguished, but for all of you right-wing shitbirds who were pushing the lie that David DePape was Paul Pelosi's gay lover, get fucked. You're on the enemies list. I would tell you to get your shit together, but I know you never will. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list. <laughs>